Alrighty. Um, so uh, we're doing something a little bit different for this episode of Keywords in Play, where normally we have a conversation between uh, two, uh, two folks. This time we have um, four guests um, and they're going to be talking about a uh, CFP as opposed to a, a completed piece of research, uh, a really interesting um, call for papers for an edited collection called The Poster Game Return. Could I get you to go around and just introduce yourselves and then maybe a little bit about how you came to be interested in questions around diversity and games? Hello. My name is Molly Ann Butt, and yes, you can call me Dr. Butt. My greatest goal in life is to become an associate professor so that I can get people to call me Aspro Butt, and my only regret is that I didn't study proctology. <laughs> and I guess I came to doing diversity work through spite. Uh, such a powerful motivator. And I have a story to tell, one of many. This is a short, fun one. So I used to work at EB Games, which is the video game retail store here in Australia. And while I was in uniform behind the counter, a guy comes up to me and asks, but do you actually play video games? And with utmost conviction, I just go, no, I just work here. <laughs> and that kind of form of resistance as part of our everyday lives is something I'm really interested in. And with feminist work being considered as complaint work, I think that's really fitting. Um, I can jump on Molly Ann's story as well. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Amanda Cody. I'm assistant professor of media studies and game studies at the University of Oregon. Um, and I also came to questions of diversity in gaming somewhat out of spite. Um, as I got, I, as I grew up, I played a lot of video games with my brothers. We always had PC games and game systems in the house. Um, and as I got older, I realized more and more that I was often the only woman in a room full of men playing games and that that was accepted as the norm. And then I also ran into kind of a lot of moments where it was very clear that the games I was expected to play as a woman gamer fell into very specific genres. One of my favorite stories, uh, which calls out my older brother a little bit, he didn't do this on purpose, but one year I asked for an Xbox for Christmas because I wanted to play with all of my friends who owned Xboxes. And my brother calls and goes, hey, Amanda, uh, mom told me you want an Xbox. Did she get that right? Are you sure you didn't actually want a Wii? He meant really well. He had a Wii, he knew it was a lot of fun. My mom's not great at video game systems, but this idea of like the Wii as the expected video game console really stuck with me. Uh, so a lot of my work since then has been about, okay, well, how did games come to be seen in certain ways and why are some games seen as more inclusive or more feminized while other games are not? Yeah. And uh, I guess it's my turn. So uh, my name is Emil Lonadale Hammer, and uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at uh, the Center for Excellence in Game Culture Studies at Tampere University. So that's a big mouthful. But um, in terms of getting interested in in diversity or so-called diversity in, in games, it's it. Uh, I guess it originates back to when I was doing my master's at 
at the IT University in Copenhagen in, uh, in uh, game studies under the tutelage of Emma Witkowski, who was teaching games culture. And uh, she was uh, propagandizing me with a lot of uh, feminist agitprop. Um, but uh, in, in addition to that, there was also the activist element in terms of just witnessing, as we've also get into later, I guess, the controversies in anglophonic gaming cultures, such as uh, the Dick Wolves incident and other times where you can just see that a lot of actors in the industry, along with this research that I've read, were simply highly um, uh, oppositional or antagonistic to any form of uh, uh, moral <laughs> value, as you might say. So that was, I guess, the kind of the, the, the specific origin point for that. So. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Cody Meir. I'm assistant professor of game studies in the Department of Media Study um, at the University at Buffalo. Um, and I think I, my, my work is with uh, queer and trans video games and storytelling. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, my interest in diversity in games, too. Um, growing up, I was a queer teenager in a part of the United States where it's not particularly safe and supportive all the time for LGBTQ people. And so games were kind of an escape for me, but also a place where like I could actually be myself in a way that I couldn't be in the actual world. And, and I've come to understand that this is a pretty common experience for a lot of people. Um, but so I was really interested in games as sort of a place for diverse stories and diverse experiences, even if that's not a reality that's often realized. And, and I think that there was a little bit of spite for me too, because as I started studying games and I started reading about people being like, oh, stories and games aren't important. I was like, oh, I'm going to give them what for. Um, and so that was, yeah, that kind of led me into game studies and really being interested in uh, diverse stories and games and their possibility for telling other stories. Fantastic, thanks so much. <clears throat> it's, it's kind of um, interesting to how much uh, anger and uh, peak is kind of played in this, uh, in this direction. Um, and um, so it's a really intriguing kind of like call for papers. So, and this is an edited collection, um, essentially. So you're inviting other scholars to contribute ideas and, and, and chapters, essentially. And um, why have you chosen this term, the post-game term, to kind of like be the flag for this um, uh, for this volume, um, and what do you precisely mean by that? So, actually, Deshana, I was really inspired by your paper that you co-authored with Tom Appley on the material turn. So, to borrow that turn of phrase, I wanted to think about the post-gamer turn as another way that we could rethink our field's imaginary again. So to challenge some of the common ways that we are taught the field's formation through the narratology versus lidology debates in the early 2000s, if we think about feminist contributions to game studies that also predate that historical moment for our discipline, and we can think of the massive amount of contributions and work by a various range of scholars, um, including feminists, talking about the gender divide in computing and tech industries and player communities 
And then the research historicizing the moment where, for example, women were the pioneers of computer programming. And then it wasn't until the 1980s, where in the 70s, video games were marketed towards families. And then after the 1983 North American video, cra uh, video game industry crash, or also known as the Atari shock in Japan, that we saw that shift between uh, from that family-oriented marketing approach towards this very specific gamer identity that was very masculine, kind of reimagining video games as a medium as if it was simply played by boys, uh, as toys for boys. And with the prefixed of post... The way I treat it is not simply that it means that it comes after or that it uh, calls for an end of the gamer identity, but rather that it's in conversation with, such as like postmodernity being in conversation with modernism. Yes, would, it, would everyone else kind of like agree with that kind of um, that take in, in the post not being after? Because this also brings us to the question of like, the historicizing kind of like gesture that you're making here so um you know are there some key moments that that um come up for you when we think about gaming gamers um and how do you think about both the, the past of that term and potential futures for me like post gamer is it is really about sort of like the evolutions and sort of the changes over time in gamer identity as we move beyond sort of this really sort of narrowly defined version of gamer and there are absolutely sort of key moments in that history right and i think that a lot of folks have done research on that like how gamer becomes sort of like more uh narrowed down and cemented into a particular identity in like the 80s and the 90s and it increasingly becomes something like oh well in the united states gamer means straight white guy usually from a rich enough family that you can buy a gaming console you know, like in all of these things, well, that's what the core of gamer is. Um, and of course, then we have the key moments uh, happening in the late 2000s and the early 2010s, where we get up to a moment like Gamergate, where like all of these sort of currents in gamer culture and who is a gamer and who is not really sort of explode. Like these sort of cultural intentions become very overt. Like, and it's not like that they, they were always there, right? And I think that any feminist, queer critical race studies scholar doing work in games will tell you that those things were always there, right? But they became very overt and noticeable and organized in a way as a campaign against anyone who was not that core limited idea of what a gamer was. Um, and I think for me, like one of the, I think that those are key moments, but even as like we consider those, and this is coming from some of my own work with, I work with the LGBTQ video game archive that was founded by Adrian Shaw. And one of the things that we find as we sort of unearth queer games history is that as much as we have that sort of larger narrative and those trends and those key moments, even all along the way, it's not like there was a moment where like, oh, and that's where queer games started, right? Like queer people were always in games all along. And I think that that's true of a lot of different marginalized identities in games, right? It's not that, um, oh, well, and, and then the then those folks disappeared and they came back 20 years later. No, they were there all along sort of dealing with 
um, how limiting this idea of gamer was. And I think that that's something important to keep in mind, right? As we consider the hegemonic narrative, there's always sort of these counter narratives and counter currents all along the way. Yeah, I agree with Cody on this one. This is a really productive time to think through both how gamers have been defined in the past and what happens if we move away from that. Um, because we have seen industrial shifts that target more types of people or that pay more attention to these audiences that existed but were overlooked, this is in many ways an era where the taken for granted nature of who a gamer is, which is of course itself a construct um, linked to a very historical moment, but that taken for granted identity has been questioned. And so now this is our chance to, to go one of two ways. On the one hand, there's kind of vocal proponents who are trying to reclaim that identity as the norm and drive others out of what they see as their space. But there's also a chance for us to think about well, what does gaming that's not based around gamers, that narrow target audience look like? And so this post-gamer thrust of the call for papers is about that, that reimagining. What does gaming that doesn't have to take gamers into account look like in terms of audience and communities, in terms of industry, and even in terms of content? So that's a big thrust of what we're trying to get at with this edited collection. I guess it's kind of linked to to the temporal aspect too, uh, in the sense that, uh, to me, uh, the collection is also about looking ahead and also couching, I guess, our analysis or understanding of gaming culture and the topics that we analyze and discuss in game studies, on not just like what the current moment is or the past have been, but also looking ahead in terms of what are the uh, challenges and what are the the, I guess I would also be a bit political and say the societal crisis we face. Uh, and here I think uh, gaming culture has been very much, uh, I like to use the term that other academics also use, the uh, uh, canary, I can't even pronounce it in English, so canary in the coal mine as such. Um, in terms of like all uh, look the symptoms of different crises, such as what Gamergate did with far right or reactionary types of stances that we still see today in many, many different uh, cases, not just in games, but elsewhere. Also in terms of political leaderships, winning popularity. Uh, there's too many names to go through where they are winning or gaining a popularity. And therefore I feel game studies as such can, can kind of be in the forefront or at least be part of the conversation on analyzing what the post-gamer turn, you might call it, or, or the different societal crisis will lead to when it comes to, uh, I guess, reactionaries and, and far-right. I mean, I'm, I'm already kind of like funneling the definition into something that it, it might not necessarily apply to, but still just like looking into how can we uh, as, as a field address perhaps future challenges that society might face that that's related or symptomatic in games. So do you see the term gamer and is it for you kind of like tied up with some of the, the political kind of like forces that you, you've just mentioned? And if it is, is it extricable? And is that some of the work that you're hoping to um, encourage or um, would like to see your editor question go towards? So firstly, I think it would be very difficult to try to claim that the gamer identity 
uh, like video games, is somehow apolitical or removed from politics since everything is political, right? And that trying to claim it as being anything else otherwise is simply a defense for the status quo, um, how power is currently maintained. So also thinking about this, I feel like our call for papers very much also wants us to reconsider um, detangling these key concepts such as players, which can signify the practice of play, right? Everyone who plays games are players and you don't have to claim the gamer identity um, into, in order to play games. And then if, uh, as we will be doing, uh, using a lowercase g gamer to talk about the process of identification where anyone should be free to claim that identity if they want to. And then on the other hand, thinking about hegemonic capital G gamers or the gamer identity as one default limited... Uh, representation of who gamers are. And so we can, with that kind of uh, unpacking, we can also see how that default hegemonic gamer identity fails, critically fails to represent all players and gamers. I think I completely agree, Malian. And I, I think for me, the question of the link the links to the politics here are I think I think that games are inextricable from politics right like in terms of identities are inherently sort of socially constructed right and so as long as we've got people and as long as games are a part of culture there's going to be sort of political uh, implications to them right and, and to identifying as a gamer that's always going to sort of make a, a sort of statement about I am a part of this group or this activity or I'm not or this is who belongs in this activity and who doesn't and so I think that there's sort of something inherently political about that and and we've seen how that's been exploited to some really sort of awful ends in the past decade right like where and I think that this was you know some political actors outside of games showing up and realizing wow a lot of these sort of cultural dynamics are present in games and I can use that to my own ends right like I can use this sort of insulary um uh motivation that some people have with this identity and I will use it to motivate them towards some other identities right uh you know something like the the alt-right um or you know get them slowly involved with white supremacy and things like that like we've seen how the gamer identity by itself you know might not seem tied to those things but it really is and and so I think that there's always like this political dynamic there I'm also thinking here as well because absolutely right and um it, but it also has reminded me of the times in my interviewees I've had women kind of trace in our conversations. Uh, oh, I didn't play any video games in high school. Wait, does Neopets count? And then go later on in the conversation. Well, like, yes, yes, Neopets definitely counts. <laughs> and then later on in our conversation, uh, she goes, can I change my answer um, from not identifying as a gamer, but actually no, right? I really want to claim that identity because why not? I play games all the time. 
And I'm like, yes, you absolutely should if you want to. So that's kind of a claim to the identity in a way that's not necessarily a claim to the hegemonic capital G gamer identity. Even if there's a tie up in there, there's also a sense of resistance to it as well. Yes, Molly, and I've had very similar experiences where uh, female gamers that I've interviewed, and I'm using gamers deliberately here because that's how they identified themselves, used that term in, in kind of feminist activist ways. They deliberately wanted to show that women could be gamers, could identify as that way. And so they would use, um, you know, girl gamer hashtags on Instagrams for board games, for video games. And so on the one hand, I get the impetus to kind of throw out the focus on gamers at all. Uh, but but then to, in some ways that dismisses the experiences of these audiences who do still see value in the term. And so uh, to bring it back to our call for papers, this is something that I would love to see submissions grapple with um, because there's, there's so many potential perspectives here, you know, is getting rid of the term gamer entirely, throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, to use a colloquialism or, is there a risk that perhaps if we throw out the term gamer, the same existing power structures will just continue to fly under the radar because now we don't have a term to analyze them? There's a lot of different potential perspectives that I know I'm still working through. I'm looking forward to editing this book as a way of, of helping me get through those. Why else do we do these CFPs? But um, yeah, I think that, that, that's, um, that's really, uh, really interesting. I just as another kind of follow-up on that, this question of like the historicization of um, the term. And um, we've obviously seen um, over the last sort of like decade or so increasing amounts of social features and incorporation of like, you know, kind of streaming. And do you, do you see the, the gender dimensions of this, which are, um, are, you know, scholars like Christine Tran and um, folks like that have kind of like investigated, does this kind of like feed in to um, the overall dynamics that you're discussing. Yeah, that, that so one, of, one of the reasons that this book is important now is because we're not, we're not de-gamifying the world, right? Like games are becoming increasingly prominent and increasingly prevalent in every area of life. Uh, colleges and universities forming esports teams and having to grapple with the cultures and gender dynamics uh, around those. Uh, live streaming, both live streaming of video games, but the massive rise in streaming of tabletop games, we can't get away from gaming. And so while gaming is becoming more and more a part of our everyday life, assessing its power structures and who's included and who's not included and who benefits from the rise of games is, is super important. Um, and so I think, again, one of the reasons why we need to ask these questions now, but also why now is a really productive time to do that. We already have great work on these fronts coming out from so many scholars um, starting to address these questions. Let's keep digging. Awesome. And just kind of like to turn to that question of scholarship, um, you're obviously all um, scholars yourselves. Um, in the CFP, you mentioned non-canonical research texts. You know, this is a collaboration between Critical Distance and uh, DIGRA. So what are your thoughts on how academia, diversity and wider critical discourses on games can work together? And what kind of uh, non-canonical type texts would you like to see? 
So I really love this quote from Amanda Phillips, who writes, we need new and different stories, but we also need to learn how to tell these stories differently. This is more than a matter of theoretical rigor, though it is that as well. Game studies as a scholarly community repeatedly fails to secure safety or respect for the marginalized scholars in its midst. So challenging that canon of what is or isn't game studies, or even expanding that to what is worth research, right? The objects of our analysis. So what is a video game or isn't a video game? All these binaries and dichotomies are something that we really need to challenge. And I think reimagining our history as much as our futures can be a really productive way to shift our scholarship, as uh, Philip says, about making it more rigorous to include different kind of ideas, those gaps that we end up missing. But it's also at the same time by doing that about accepting different scholars who are marginalized, who in the past have been told, well, you're not a real game studies scholar, right? We've heard these stories before too, <laughs> even today. Yeah, and I think, Molly, and you're so right that we continue to hear sort of those stories, right, of like um, people just not being valued in the stories that they're telling or how they're telling them. And for, for the CFP, and I, I think just more broadly for game studies, I think it's important to it's always been really strange to me that some of the most impactful work, some of the most public facing work is some of the stuff that gets valued the least in academia. That's just a really odd contradiction to me, whereas some of the things that get most valued in say like a 10 year case or something like that are these you know, academic journal articles that like six people read. And it's like, okay, that's great. The highly specialized discourse is good. Um, but also why aren't we valuing more some of this stuff that is much more impactfully entering public discourse, right? About games and who plays them and what they should be and all of that. So I think like, uh, I we're all really excited about sort of other non-canonical texts, things like streams or game recordings or or podcasts or things like that, and, and how that might intersect with a chapter in our collection, right? Either sort of studying those sorts of texts or um, maybe even like linking to them in some ways or like uh, helping to include them in the conversation um, rather than just sort of going to the same old um, standard methods as tried and true as they are. Um, but I think that part of that like uh, acknowledging non-canonical texts is also looking at methods that have been considered lesser than. Um, and I think autoethnography is a really great example of that. And that like autoethnography is often it's writing through personal experiences and stories and, and using those as really valid things to look at in your research, right? In a way that oftentimes the sort of dominant methods in a field would look at that and say like, oh no, that's it's too personal, it's too subjective. You, you can't verify it, you can't duplicate it. It just doesn't count here, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that it's part of this project is also taking those sorts of methods seriously, right? That personal experiences and stories do count, they do matter. They are a valid source of research amongst, you know, others, right? Like there are other methods that need to go alongside them, but that we really need to value the personal um, 
in sort of that age-old uh, feminist adage, right? The personal is political, and we need to value the personal in accounting for uh, games and their cultures. So uh, we're interested in those sorts of diverse methods as well, those diverse ways of knowing and how those might be a part of um, this collection. So the question that that kind of really raises for me, that really ties a lot with a lot of the questions with this call for papers, this edited collection, is around who and what counts, right? I think that's kind of at the core of the themes here. Yeah, and uh, what what I would also like to add is we would also encourage people to not be afraid of submitting anything they might find, I guess, too too radical as uh, as such for an academic uh, journal that they will find too normative perhaps uh, i think it's good that we at least have academic text or academic publications that that also goes from the descriptive to the normative uh, right because uh, there's also a limit to how long or for how many decades or how many centuries we want to talk about uh, let's call it diversity or equality and these type of things right that that the theory has been established, or I like like this Andreas Mellon quote, this uh, eco uh, ecology guy from Sweden. He says, uh, "All has already been said. Now is the time for confrontation. Not the uh, not that we need confrontation uh, necessarily, but just that uh, there's a there's also it's good to have something that's that breaks the boundaries of what uh, is necessarily only analytical, but also a bit more normative. I guess I would say." beginning of this chat today, we talked about how a lot of us were motivated by spite, um, which is only partially joking about that. You know, we we all had uh, what we've discussed, a real sense that the questions we were interested in or the questions that were relevant to us weren't being asked and weren't being answered in the field. And so we all kind of uh, speaking, at least for myself and I think for everyone else, took it upon ourselves to answer those questions instead. And so um, submissions to the book, we hope will, will continue to do that work. What questions haven't been asked? What questions haven't been answered? What new directions do we need to keep going in to grow as a field? Awesome. Um, so where can folks find out more about the CFP itself and uh, where they can contribute? Well, you can find out more about our call for papers at postgameaturn.wordpress.com and you can submit by November 30th to postgameaturn at gmail.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking with us today and best of luck with the edited collection. Can't wait.